Welcome to Camp Podcast Piano Talk. I am Pianist Migo and I serve as president of the Contemporary Art Music Project or CAMP. CAMP is an organization that promotes innovative art music and collaborates with composers and performing artists. One of many activities we do is our podcast series. Our hosts explore a wide range of topics from marginalized composers, music history, to current collaborations. I am excited to announce that as our podcast continues to explore different topics, we have decided to consolidate our podcast series into one. Please make sure you're subscribed to Camp Podcasts to enjoy Lost to Time, Play the Ink, Piano Talk, Camp Podcast Special Edition, and more. Tonight, I am your host, and I am thrilled to talk with pianist composer Huan Choke. True talent, a genius diamond that you so rarely see by St. Petersburg Times which I totally agree with. Concertizing throughout America's Europe and Asia, an Inca Indian and a native of Peru, pianist and composer Juan Choque is a world-renowned soloist, recitalist, chamber musician, and composer. Hi Juan, welcome, and thank you so much for being here with me. Oh, it's good to be here. I'm, I'm excited to chit-chat about piano and music for a while. Great. Thank you. That's what we do here. So we usually start with um, a background question, you know, how you um, encounter with uh, art music and, you know, what was your drama? <laughs> with your, you know, <laughs> yes. your your first encounter with with your music, yeah. Yes, and I I, I think it's safe to say it's quite dramatic. Uh, uh, and so for me, there's there's the issue of my first encounters with music, and then there's the issue of my first encounter with classical music. And I think it's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's important to talk about both of them uh, because my original or initial experiences with music really had a huge impact on how I received classical music then. So I grew up for the first five years of my life in Peru and uh i did hear music there and it was very traditional uh inca music and i think there are a couple things that i always associate with uh inca music and i'm sure other people in other uh let's say folk uh, traditions can say similar things um but I would say the, the two things, one is oral and one is visual, for lack of a better word. Um, the oral experience is that the music by and large is very 
uh, what we would call pentatonic. Of course, pentatonic can mean a lot more than what we usually think of it as, but, but now I'm speaking of it in the pretty traditional sense of uh, pentatonicism. And uh, in that understanding of pentatonic scales, there is no uh, half step. Uh, and mm -hmm. for that matter, there's, mm -hmm. I think there's like, there's like maybe one, uh, there might be one whole step, but yeah, there's no half steps. Mm -hmm. And that becomes very important as, as this goes along. The other aspect of things is more, as I would say, visual, although it has a very oral, comp oral component to it. Um, but that is that you know, Inca music is a very, it's a very communal experience, right? There are a lot of people standing around with uh, their different instruments, you know, uh, whether it's the, the high flutes or the the high uh, guitars, we call charangos and, and other things. Uh, and they're all playing different lines, if you will, different parts that then contribute to this big sound uh, that is the music. Uh, so I took that sort of those predispositions, those understandings with me when I came to the US and heard music for the first time. Uh, the first piece of music, if you will, that I ever heard came out of a music box and uh, it was playing Hickory Dickory Dock and <laughs> nice little piece. And uh, if you know the tune, you can't get two notes into it before you hit your first uh, uh, semitone motion. <laughs> and that was wild for me. I, I, mm. I, I couldn't understand it, you know, and uh, it just didn't make sense to me, but I loved it. And, um, and I should inter, interject at this point that um, I, I would describe most Inca music as fairly sad uh, or bittersweet in sound. And they managed to do it with, like I said, no, no uh, semitone motions in the, in the tunes. And so when I heard the semitone for the first time, I... To me, it was like the saddest thing I ever heard, you know. Mm, mm. Um, so I've always sort of carried that with me, that this this motion of the semitone has this extremely bittersweet uh, quality to it, even when the music is obviously very happy. And then the first piece of classical music I heard was Brahms' second piano concerto, mm -hmm. which, you know, for a five-year-old to hear, a five, six-year-old, that's, uh, I think most people would say, oh, that that's too young to really understand what's going on there. And I've, I found in my situation that was not the case, partly because I went through some pretty uh, traumatic experiences in Peru that Thankfully, most people don't have to experience. 
but I think that it prepares you <laughs> for some of the deep uh, emotions that you get in very complex romantic music like that. But, you know, it, it opens with this French horn melody. And again, you get to the fourth note and there's, there's your first semitone motion. And I just immediately, uh, you know, brought to that understanding some very, very bittersweet aspect to it. And then the next thing that happens is the piano, you hear the piano at the very low end of the instrument. And that was, that was pretty wild for me because again, we, we didn't have sounds that low uh, mm. in the Inca music that I knew. So, uh, and then you have this piano cadenza, right? Which in itself is kind of amazing uh, mm -hmm. from a historical mm -hmm. perspective. Uh, but the piano is just all over the place. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was just listening to a recording. So I didn't understand yet that that was one person doing all of this. So mm -hmm. I in my natural way of con conceiving music at that time, I just assumed it was a whole bunch of people, you know, let's say holding different instruments. Uh, they, they were the same type of instrument, but different ranges, you know, different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and they were all playing their parts, their voices. And I was amazed like, Oh, how did they, you know, how did they coordinate all of that <laughs> uh, to, to sound so unified and so, you know, extraordinary? But it, it took a, a quite a while before I came to realize, no, that was one person doing all of that. And that's the capability of that instrument it's called the piano. Um, but I carried this, uh, this, I guess, habit of breaking things down into lines and registers and things, as I had always done uh, in Peru, I carried that into uh, all classical music. You know, when you're listening to an orchestra, that makes sense. Um, but I did it for all piano music too. And so that tendency has has been the way that I have listened to, uh, memorized, performed, and composed music. So it, it's had a, a very enormous impact on, you know, just uh, the way that I deliver music to other people. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't think I yeah, remember my own name when I was five. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's amazing. And also, you know, it's like how people um, have this kind of personal memory about, you know, um, very specific elements of music. It could be like for you, it's like semitone. Um, for somebody else, it could be like some segments of a piece and uh, or it can be really anything. It's really magical. Yeah. Yeah. It's and um, 
you know, it's uh, also really interesting thinking about, um, um, I don't know anything about Inca music, but, you know, different kinds of music. And I also think about the music um, in Korea, ancient times and and uh, Middle Age and, um, you know, 17th, 19th century uh, music that's, I, you know, when I had very little um, interest when I was younger about that, and now uh, I listen to those music, it's, that music, it's really amazes me. It's like the most beautiful thing to me. And you know how how your perception changes over the time. That's also amazing too, mm-hmm. right? Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, and I think you know that's uh, like why you're you're playing and your you know your your interpretation is so original and unique of. You know, whatever you play, like Brahms, Galati, or um, Mozart, Bach. Um, you know, that's that's was one thing that I admire so much about uh, about you that it's just so original, so sincere, um, really um, touching performance. Oh well, I appreciate that, and <clears throat> yeah, you know, I. I... I feel like I'm lucky in a way uh, to have, you know, had a time in my life when there was a vacuum, you know, when I didn't know classical music. I mean, I knew music, but not classical music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I feel really lucky about that because even though I'm much, much older now and I've been playing forever, it seems like, um, I still feel like, uh, as we say, a, a kid in a candy store, you know, when I uh, look at, a, you know, a score for the first time of a piece I haven't learned yet. But it's a piece that we all know, you know, we've, I mean, we've heard these pieces to death, right, a lot of them. <laughs> but just looking at a score and seeing, oh, my goodness, here's a voice that I haven't heard anyone mm-hmm. bring out. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I just I just get excited about that, Anna. And I feel like I'm maybe, uh, maybe from, uh, let's say, a perform, like a historical performance perspective, I'm rediscovering things that, you know, if you, if you listen to recordings from 80, 90, 100 years ago, you, you might hear more of this kind of discovery and exploration. But, but for me, it's, it's all brand new. And I just, I, I love it. You know, one of the things that <clears throat> I think um, when I look through a score, I, I'm kind of guilty, I admit it, of uh, not paying attention to a lot of performance indications like dynamics and articulations and pedal marks and things like that, because I'm so focused on the pitches and the rhythms. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm just so 
convinced that between the pitches and the rhythms, they they almost tell you how to play the piece uh, so that a lot of the performance indications that we do see aren't necessary. Uh, you know, that's not always the case, obviously, but, um, but quite often, I mean, if you look at, you know, let's say a Beethoven score, right? And we see lots of Sforzandos in Beethoven scores. Uh, most of the time, you already know to do that, even if that Sforzando wasn't there, because they emphasize uh, syncopations, they emphasize, uh, let's say, chords with a minor ninth, which again, is that is that semitone again, right? I mean, that's basically what what's going on there. Uh, and so, yeah, they emphasize these things that are so unusual in the music. Um, but I just think that musically where I came from uh, has had such a great uh, influence on the way that I look at pieces that don't belong to my culture, my original culture, uh, but but bring, I guess, a sort of fresh, I wouldn't say new, but definitely fresh uh, perspective to it. No, it's amazing. I mean, it's to me, it's like you make this a really unexpected turn and make the piece totally new. So let's listen to uh, your performance of Brahms, Opus 118, number two, which is one of the most popular pieces. And um, let's enjoy that how, um, you know, unique and original this piece could be just by a performance.
with Brahms Opus 118, number two, performed here by Juan Choque. You wear so many different hats. You know, you are uh, obviously the renowned soloist um, and uh, chamber musician and also a composer. And um, how do you manage being, you know, um, so many awesome things. <laughs> I wish I could manage it better, honestly. And <laughs> that's, I think I've probably talked to you about this, but I, I definitely uh, have complained to other people that I I wish I I, I look at somebody like uh, like Bernstein, it's one of my idols, you know, and conductor, pianist, composer. An educator, right? I mean, just the, the amount mm -hmm. of things he did. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that he didn't just uh, exclusively do one thing uh, for a stretch and then move on to something else. Unfortunately, that's <laughs> that's that's the way that I I work. So you know, if if I am preparing for concerts, I I can't be uh, composing. And if I'm composing, I can't be preparing for concerts. And, and the problem is even worse than that, honestly. I, I, I don't know. I guess I have, I, what do they call that tunnel vision? When you, you only uh, can see mm -hmm, one mm -hmm. thing at a time, you know? <laughs> so it's like, so, you know, this this year, for example, was the first year that I, I had several like parallel commissions going on at the same time. And I have to say it was freaking me out because I'm so used to just writing one thing at a time. And, uh, but yeah, this time there were uh, competing deadlines and it was rough uh, out of my headspace for this thing and moved to a headspace for that thing. And I, I wish I had a way of being uh, efficient about that, but I don't. So to answer your question, I'm very fortunate in that I sleep very little, as you know. <laughs> I, I, I can, you know, I do very well on four hours a night. And as a result, I have more time. And that's that's what I need. I don't know what I would do if I were a normal human being who needed eight, 10, 12 hours I wouldn't get anything done. So. Well, that's, I mean, you know, as a being, normal human being, I don't get much done. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you also have this um, piano ensemble piece uh, and uh, your own composition and your um, duo partner, uh, which just, it's so amazing. And, uh, um, uh, can we uh, listen to the piece and talk about the piece, maybe? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So let's listen to uh, Suite in the Baroque Manor for two pianos. Um, uh, we're going to listen to the last movement jig.
Sweet in the Baroque manner for two pianos, Jig, the last movement, um, by Huen Choke, performed here by Huen Choke and Emi Okumura. So tell us about this piece and uh, what was the, uh, your inspiration writing this piece? Yes, so the, actually one of the reasons I started composing anyway uh, a number of years ago was to basically give myself more concerts. Uh, I figured out if I, if I composed things that people liked and then I put a piano part in there, then I had to play too. So it was, it was very beneficial in that way. And, and so early on, I started writing things for either um, piano four hands or two pianos. And one of the first things that I started writing was I, I actually wrote, it's interesting you played the jig because the first thing that I wrote uh, of the suite was the, the opening uh, subject, fugue subject mm. from the jig. And I wrote that at a time when I was just beginning to compose and I had these grand ideas about all these things I wanted to do. And one of the things I, I really wanted to do was to uh, really dig into, explore uh, the Bach uh, orchestral suites. Mm. You know, culturally, I think we're, we're familiar with a couple bits here and there, right? Like the, the air on the G string, you hear it every wedding and, and uh, things like that. But those suites are so rich and they're so full of uh, <clears throat> different kinds of music, uh, uh, just different varieties of sounds. And from the orchestral point of view, he does some pretty fantastic uh, orchestration that I, I don't think get pointed out very often. And so I was really intrigued by those. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to write something that was like an orchestral suite uh, but for pianos. Uh, so <clears throat> I, I decided to do that and I wrote that subject for the Zhig and then I couldn't write anything else. I couldn't think of what to do next. So it sat there for, <laughs> I think, I think it sat there for, I don't know, uh, 14, 15 years, something like that. Uh, <laughs> And so I, this year, I got a commission uh, from MTNA and New York State uh, Music Teachers Association to write something. And I thought, what the heck, you know, mm -hmm. I'm getting paid. I might as well finish this. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I wrote this uh, suite and it, and it really, it takes a lot of its inspiration from uh, particularly the third and fourth uh, orchestral suites of Bach, especially the fourth suite. You know, it begins with the typical overture. And as you know, the, that kind of overture, French overture has the slow, stately beginning, and then you've got yeah. the faster fugue. And the cool thing about that overture in the, in the Bach fourth suite, most fugues in French overtures are in, they're either in six, eight, or like a fast, 4-4, four, four, something like this. 
but this one was in 9 8. Uh, and because of that, he does some amazing things uh, that two pianos just, even two pianos couldn't do. Uh, but he, you know, he has all these echo effects and things like that uh, that he does. And I just got so excited by that. Uh, so I decided to write my fugue also in 9 8 uh, in the overture. Then the second movement is an air, similar to the kind of thing that we're used to, right? The, the air and the G string. Mm -hmm. And that also, to, you know, for in a full disclosure, uh, I wrote, was very much inspired by Emmy herself. She is, you know, a very darling human being. And, uh, and there's a certain sort of lyricism that she has when she plays mm -hmm. that I that I really love. And since I knew that Emmy and I were going to be starting a duo, uh, I really wrote this, this piece for us specifically to play and that movement in particular to, to kind of show, show her off. Um, then you have your pairs of dances, right? The gavots and the minuets, and then the jig that we heard. Mm -hmm. Um, and one thing about this jig, uh, where I sort of put my own touch on things is that at the end of the jig, you get the slow part of the overture, uh, as, as the final, you know, clincher of the whole thing. Um, so in a, in a weird sort of way, uh, the whole suite then becomes sort of like a French overture, right? Where, you start with the French overture, the slow bits, and you go through all this other stuff. And finally, after this, you, you come back once again to uh, that uh, stately part of the French overture. So it's sort of a, you know, you can almost think of it as an overture within an overture kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I was kind of proud of that little touch, I, I have to say. Cool. Yeah. Um, I like to actually continue talking about you know you mentioned about um the uh your partner emmy okumura and um reflecting her uh playing um and uh personally taking that as uh, um, kind of inspiration for composition and uh, you have this uh uh piano work, piano, solo piano work that's inspired um, by uh, Inca music. And also it's dedicated to this performer, Kimball um, Gallagher. So I think we can probably uh, talk about that and, uh, you know, your um, kind of take on uh, this early uh, choral music, early um, Inca choral music, and also this um, particular performer, Kimball uh, Gallagher. Yeah, so uh, Kimball is a wonderful pianist. He can reach, he has big hands. He can, <laughs> I think he can reach like a 12th. It's very... It's frustrating, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I say that because uh, he, so he commissioned this, this piece. All, uh, it's also another suite and, uh, and I try as much as I can to, you know, write 
to the specific strengths of people who ask for things. So there are uh, a number of 11ths in the piece. uh, And I think in the movement that we will hear, uh, if you listen very carefully, you might hear uh, a couple of those as well. Um, But Kimball is also very, he's very special to me in in a very different kind of way. Um, He has a way of uh, getting me to do things that I normally wouldn't do, uh, especially in the musical realm. Uh, and this piece is a, a very good example of that. Um, until I wrote this piece, actually, I wanted nothing to do with uh, writing music that had any sort of Inca influence. Besides, you know, the 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 influence that I already talked about with, you know, the, the contrapuntal thing and the, that sort of thing, but more, uh, I think influence in the way that people generally think about, you know, uh, cultures sort of, uh, uh, melding, mixing with each other. I really didn't want to do that because I mean, I love, I'm sure you can relate to this too. Inca music speaks to a part of my heart that, Mm-hmm. nothing else does and it's hard to it's really hard to describe but when I try to play Inca melodies on the piano I mean it just sounds it sounds awful to me uh and so <laughs> I, so I just swore I'm never gonna do that you know uh but Kimba was like look you know I want you to write this suite and I wanted to reflect different countries that I have visited as a pianist. Um, but I want you to include Peru in there because I visited, you know, he visited Peru and it, it has to be in there. Um, so I was, you know, I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. You know, I was grumbling and groaning. And, and as a result, you know, it took much longer to write this piece. I think it took mm-hmm. a, a couple of years. <laughs> but, but at some point, as I was trying to figure out what can I do, and I was doing a little bit of research, and I stumbled upon this this song. It, really, it's a it's a hymn that is found in a very early uh, Catholic hymnal mm-hmm. of Peru from back in the sixteen I think the sixteen twenties, and the tune is called Hanak Pacha Kusikwinin. And it's a it's meant as a pr- processional, so which means that you know the priests are supposed to walk very slowly mm. up to the to the front as this is going on. When I heard this 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 tune, I just like I seriously just broke down crying because it really was, a, uh, I think, a very genuine kind of almost, I would say, accidental mixing mm. of the two cultures where the, the tune itself clearly has Inca overtones. Mm. Uh, there's no way to avoid that. It's, it's absolutely, uh, you know, Inca sort of inspired, let's say. 
and the language is the Inca language. Uh, but the harmonies are, I would say, you know, very, let's say, high Renaissance European mm -hmm. uh, harmonies. But it works so beautifully together. Um, and, you know, we can have arguments some other time about, you know, is this right, you know, uh, that these people who came in and destroyed Peru and they did all this mm -hmm. and then, you mm -hmm. know, this, this music, I don't know. I, that's, that's, that's for different people to discuss, but, but the, the product was absolutely stunning to me. And when I heard that, I thought, this is something I can use. Mm -hmm. So I decided to use that melody and also actually the, as you hear in the recording, the, the drum, I decided to use that and, and made uh, basically a fantasy uh, on that tune. Um, and that's what opens the suite. And it also comes back in the last movement, which is also about Peru. Uh, it's, it's sort of about uh, someone's, when they see the destruction that, that happened in Peru. Uh, but at the very end of that movement, that theme uh, comes back in, in just a, a snippet of it, enough to be recognizable. But so Kimball, again, he was the one who moved me from never wanting to put Inca music in this, uh, in, in piano music, to getting me to a place where I, I would consider that. Um, and as a result, I've actually done it a couple more times, um, not so directly with melodies like this, but with at least subject matter that has to do with, with uh, Inca material. Cool. Well, let's listen to Hanak um, Pachap Kusi Quinin, performed here by Ensemble Biancico. And uh, we'll listen to the first movement from Faded Beliefs, which was inspired by this um, music um, and composed by Juan Choque. Um, and of course, performed here by Kimball Gallagher.
It was Anak Pachap Kusei Kunin performed by Ensemble Biansiku. And first movement from Faded Leaves by Huan Choke performed by Kimball Gallagher. You know, for me, uh, this is all about discovering um, that you run into difficulties, you run into frustration, you run into all kinds of um, suffering and pain, and, and you discover music, you discover something new, and then you turn that into, um, you know, turn that into a form of art. It's amazing, really. And, uh, you know, uh, if you can share your wisdom uh, with our audience about um, being an artist um, and being being creative, that would be amazing. Yeah, I <clears throat> I guess what I would say is go back, <laughs> go back <laughs> to the basics, right? Uh, I, I think sometimes we, and I understand. I mean, especially in our uh, you know Western classical culture. It's like a thousand years old now. And so it's, you know, when we try to come up with something new, whether it, it's an interpretation or uh, a compositional uh, technique or something, I think sometimes we can feel weighed down, right? By, by all this history and like, what, what, what possibly new can, can we do? Mm -hmm, I mean, they've mm -hmm. done it all. And it's true. I mean, if you look at history in a way, uh, there's kind of a cyclical aspect of things too. <laughs> anyway, mm -hmm. where, you know, Schoenberg wasn't the first person to uh, to you know go off the way he did. I mean, you look at Jez Waldo, and he kind of did the same mm -hmm. thing, right? And mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so yeah, you have these these cycles, and I do take a measure of comfort even just from observing those cycles. But I, I guess the two pieces of advice that I would say are, number one, strip all the decorations aside and, and actually just go back to, uh, if you're a composer, the pitches and the rhythms, or even a performer. You know, just go back to that and see what's actually going on and see what you can figure out before considering everything else that that was written um and I, I just think you know you'll discover things as as you said well that you didn't see before and that a lot of people didn't see before um i would say then the other thing is once you start uh, forming your interpretation or writing your piece don't second guess yourself. That's an extremely easy thing to do. Um, you know, especially from the, the, the composing side, uh, it's easy to start writing something and say, oh, well, you know, I think Zanakis did that already, or I, I you know, I recognize that little bit from Schumann uh, or, you know, Buxtehuda or something. So I shouldn't use that. And if you 
you know, if you keep doing that, you'll just, you'll, you won't write anything. Um, and I think we, it's easy to forget that someone's voice consists of a lot of different things, you know, like what makes Schumann Schumann or what makes Haydn Haydn. It, it isn't just, you know, one or two, uh, gestures that they used or different cadences or, uh, textures or whatever. There's, there's a whole, I don't know, box, toolbox that they used and, uh, and the way they used it is different than the way someone else used it, even though they're using the same tools. And so I, I think once you consider get out of your, <laughs> get out of your own way and just keep writing, you know, and maybe at the end of it, you'll say, oh my goodness, that I'm not into that. Uh, but before you throw it out, you know, try to figure out what it is about it that you don't like, because that very well may tell you, you know, what, what to do later. But I, I just, I find that all the time. And, and, and I would say too, even as an audience, you know, let's say you're listening to a new piece. I have to say, sometimes it's, it's a little hard for me when I'm showing a new piece to somebody and they're like, oh, I hear Mozart there, you know, it's like, oh, that's, that's Rachmaninoff over here. And I'm like, no, I, I took a lot of time to write this down and, uh, uh, you know, listen to the whole thing, right. And figure out how it all works together because yeah, that little bit might sound like, like Rachmaninoff, but I guarantee you, I didn't use it the way that he did. Because I couldn't, um, but I, I think as an audience, if if you can sort of really listen to something as if you're hearing it for the first time, which is actually a good thing to do, even when you've heard something a billion times, uh, because you'll you'll always find something new, something uh, refreshing that you hadn't heard before, and frankly, will probably move you, touch you in a way that, that you hadn't experienced before. So that's, that would be my, uh, my advice. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, I mean, I think every composer, every uh, artist, every performing artist, uh, has their own and, um, what whatever they experience it's in in their music um whether it's rock money enough or mozart it's in there as as their experience so yeah well, thank you so much and sharing um you know your music and your insights and wisdom with us um it's absolutely precious and thank you again for being here Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Support us by donating. You can go to our website, www.contemporaryartmusicproject.org and simply click the donate button. Help us continue our podcast festival and other exciting projects. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time with more piano music.